0: Well, that video, again, reminds us of just how generous God is and how rich he has been towards us with um, with just all of his blessings for us. We're in the midst of a sermon series about generous living, and uh, today we're going to be talking about moving towards trust and trusting God with our lives and with all that God gives to us. And the first week, Doug talked about, and he really started us out with helping us understand that God is the one who is really the model of generosity? That that he gave us life, that he gave us his his love, and he gives us his son. He gave us uh, his son, even to the point of sacrifice of a cruel death on the cross. And and the life uh, has been uh, given to us because uh, God overcame death through the life of Christ. And so the other thing and then last week is that I gave us the opportunity to think about if we really want to move away from the emptiness, the empty uh, fulfillment that comes from uh, materialism, that we can experience freedom from that thing if we move towards uh, generosity. If we actually practice generosity, uh, we get away from the pursuit of materialism that leads to emptiness. Now, as we begin this morning, I assume that most of you have worked really hard for your money. And we work really hard for our money. Sometimes we ask the question, why should I now give it away? Uh, some of you may become aware. This past summer, there was a video challenge that came through mainly through Facebook that was called the a- uh, ALS Bucket Challenge. Do you guys remember that? So how many of you participated in the Bucket Challenge? Some of you are looking at me like you don't even know what I'm talking about. Uh, ALS um, uh, did this challenge on, on by video that that you could either give money to donate towards ALS to help to fight that disease. Or if you wanted to, you could take a a bucket, fill it with ice water, and then either pour it on yourself or have somebody dump it on you. And kind of the shock value of seeing that happen on video. But then you would challenge your friends to do the same thing. Well, ALS, we've been told, raised a $100 million this summer through that ALS bucket challenge. Uh, They raised 10 times more money than they had ever raised ever before in one year. And that certainly demonstrates quite a bit of generosity, and that's a lot of money, no doubt. However, on a per-gift basis, neither guilt nor warm feelings produce radical or, or drastic generosity, at least not, from my perspective, as radical as the generosity of the early church, immediately following Christ and those first few centuries. That church community was a radically generous church community. Acts 2 actually gives us a description of just how dynamic and generous this church was and the impact that they had on their community and their world. In this dynamic church that's in Acts 2, they, we're told they devoted themselves to certain things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to a fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And today we kind of consider some of the effects of their devotion. Specifically a passion to invest their resources in the lives of other believers, but then also with even those who weren't believers and the rest of uh, the people in their community, to do the work of building God's kingdom. Acts 2, verse 44 begins, and it tells us, it for, informs us in this early church that all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The early church continued to demonstrate this radical generosity for centuries. Literally, probably, it's estimated until uh, about 350 A.D., the church community was considered to be a radically generous community. We also know that when Jesus uh, was uh, raised from the dead and then ascended into heaven, that the early church was really very, very small. There was only a a few hundred people that were a part of that early church. And yet we know by the time 350 A.D. rolls around that there were at least 30 million people in the Roman Empire who were devoted to the Christian faith. Well, what happened? What kind of influence did the early church have on people? Uh, And part of that influence is literally through their radical generosity. Let me give you a couple of examples, just a couple. There's many examples, but I want you to understand just how radical their generosity was. In the early Roman Empire, especially for Roman citizens, uh, when they would have children, they would hope that they would have uh, uh, boys that would be born to them, infants who who were boys, and they would celebrate if they had a baby boy. But if they had a baby girl, then they had a very difficult choice to make with that infant. Uh, You see, that culture, they understood that if you had a boy, that boy was going to be someone who would make income, who would earn income for your family. That boy could do hard labor and get income. That boy could also join the military, get quite a bit of money. So boys meant income. Girls meant you spent money. There was quite a bit of sacrifice to have a girl. Usually girls would not uh, be able to have a job that would get much money. And beyond that, when your girls grew up or your girl grew up and somebody came and wanted to marry her, Uh, you would have to pay them a dowry in order for them to to marry your daughter. So girls were quite expensive, and it was considered quite a sacrifice to have a girl. And so Roman citizens thought nothing, well, not really. They thought nothing of uh, making a decision if they were given an infant daughter at night to go out into the, the, the woods or into the hills outside the city And take that infant daughter and leave her out in the countryside. And allow the elements or the wild animals to take that child's life. And that became a relief to them. Interesting thing, though, was the church community took seriously the teaching of Jesus about the value of human life. In fact, the early teaching of the church talked about that, that God values every person, right? It didn't matter if you were a Jew or a Gentile. It didn't matter if you were a male or a female or if you were a free person, a rich person, or if you were a slave. That God values every person. And the church took that seriously. And so what they would do at night is they would have Christians that would go out in the countryside and they would go looking for infant girls who had been left to die. And they would take those infant girls into their homes and they would make the decision that they were going to take responsibility for that girl. They were going to sacrifice for their family to raise that child so that that child could live and that God would be honored by the value of that life. Now, fast forward, if you do enough of that, if enough people put their girls out to, to, to die, then you go 20 years ahead. Uh, and when your young boys are growing up and they want to get married, where are all the women It becomes a problem in the culture where the Christians had realized, again, God's plan is good, that God desires and values women. And so what would happen is these young men who were growing up in Roman homes would grow up. They'd go in the military. They'd become of of age to want to marry another woman. And where would they go looking for women? Because there weren't very many women in Roman uh, communities. They would go to the church because the church would be filled with many, many young women. Literally, these households might sometimes have five, six, seven, eight young women in the household. And part of the church said, you can come and you can ask for these girls' li- uh, uh, hand in marriage, but if you're going to do that, you need to commit your life to Christ. You need to join the church. You need to understand how much God loves you and that we're not going to just give our kids away to anybody, but we want to give our kids away to people who know and are committed to following Christ. And so it was an effective means of evangelism you had the women you had the opportunity to evangelize the guys it's true it happened to thousands upon thousands of romans uh young men another way the church was generous radical generosity was uh in the time of jesus paul other early church Okay, disease, they didn't know how to handle disease. They had no idea about cleanliness and they didn't know what it meant. They didn't have the advantages of modern medicine. And so oftentimes disease would come into some of these communities and it would just ravage the community. Literally thousands of people could die in just a few short weeks or months. And something like the Black Plague might come into a large town or a large city. And when people saw people beginning to get sick, they would basically look at their family and decide, are we all healthy if they had anyone who they thought was sick, they would leave them. They would take their healthy members of their family and they would leave the city. They wouldn't, even, they wouldn't even go and tell that person goodbye. They would leave them in the home. They wouldn't even think about how to take care of that person. They were so afraid of death. Now, as all these pagans were leaving the city whenever disease would come, do you know who started coming into the cities? Christians. By the hundreds, by the thousands, because the Christians took seriously the idea that Jesus had said, when you give your life to me, you are assured of eternal life. They knew without a shadow of a doubt, no matter what happened to them, if they lived or even if they died, helping take care of people who were sick, that God had promised them eternal life. And so they would go in and they would take care of the sick as the, the thousands were leaving the city. And what would end up happening is many, th- many of the Christians would die they become exposed and they would die, giving their life to taking care of these people. But oftentimes some of these sick people would live and some of the Christians would live who were taking care of them. And then when the disease was finally eradicated, people would come back to the city and families would come back and they would discover that they had family members who were still living. Yet those family members had been exposed to the love of God, the generosity of God through Christians. And they were exposed to the family of God. And so literally these people who had been abandoned, their families would come back. And they would have been exposed to the family of God, but then they're also seeing, again, their family who had abandoned them. Which family do you think they chose to be connected to because of that radical generosity? The church. People were attracted to the church, again, because of this radical generosity. The early church had radical trust in God. They had faith that God would provide, that in God we trust. That's written in our dollar bills, but the early church believed it. In God we trust. And generosity is what follows a radical trust in the faithfulness and the goodness of God. And for us to explore beyond just this mere report of generosity and investigate the motives behind such behavior, I'm going to invite us to turn to another passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's a, it's a passage that Timothy is being taught by Paul about uh, this, this idea of generosity. And literally Paul is writing in this passage is a parallel passage to what was read in Matthew six, and it describes quite a bit about the generosity that we experience as Christians following Christ. This is what Paul writes. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil some people eager for money have wandered from their faith and pierced themselves with many griefs but you man of god flee from all this and pursue righteousness godliness faith love endurance and gentleness fight the good fight of the faith take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you were made when you made good your good confession in the presence of many witnesses In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, Whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to be good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves. As a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Paul gives some just outstanding teaching that I think follows up what Jesus teaches consistently in the Gospels about life that is truly life. And part of that is to live a generous life. And if we're going to be uh, experiencing generous living, we need to understand that trusting God means being content with His provision. Unfortunately, our human hearts, we tend to go after wrong goals in this life that we think things that will bring true life and fulfillment, but they end up being empty promises. And we chase things that won't last, they won't bring true life, and this is nothing new. This is the same kind of thing that Paul and Timothy saw in their day, people that had illusions that money and material wealth would bring about ultimate satisfaction. It doesn't surprise us that this wasn't new. It merely illustrates the, the truth of the Bible's teaching that, that humankind is sinful and we struggle with our sin nature. And Paul is also not suggesting that God is stingy, that he will only give us food and water or clothing. No, but he is suggesting that the generous life is truly a fulfilling life. It's an abundant life. It may not just be abundant with material and financial wealth, but it certainly will be abundant with the blessings of that God gives to us in this lifetime. C.S. Lewis, a Christian author, he wrote the, the Chronicles of Narnia. He's also a, was a great Bible scholar and theologian. He wrote a book called The Weight of Glory. And in this book, he talks a little bit about what we're thinking about. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Pleased with things that don't really bring satisfaction or fulfillment. Where does C.S. Lewis get such an idea? It's from passages like what we see in Timothy Chapter six in verse six in this passage, Paul reminds Timothy, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, but it's not the only place we see it. Timothy or Paul writes even earlier in the same letter to Timothy in in chapter four, verse eight, he reminds Timothy that godliness is of value in every way. And where did Paul learn this? He learned this from Jesus. Uh, We can experience the abundant life by Living into the generous life by being generous, by practicing giving our money and our lives and our time and our talents uh, to things that go beyond ourselves. Jesus is very consistent with his teaching on generosity and the rewards that come with the practice of giving instead of accumulating. Listen to some of the things that Jesus taught in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 12, verse 33, Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. But then he goes on, he says, uh, sell those possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags so that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Jesus motivates us by inviting us to radical generosity with the promise of personal rewards. Rewards that are delayed, rewards that may not come in this lifetime, but there will be definite eternal rewards that come with a generous lifestyle. Luke 14 says, uh, Jesus also says when you give a feast invite the poor the crippled the lame the blind and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. If we want to if we want to become poor we do what Jesus says we start giving all of our money away we start inviting the poor to come and to eat all of our food and to use all of our resources and and Jesus is asking us he's inviting us to begin to practice this kind of generosity. It sounds crazy. Should Christians feel Uh, the the necessary uh, requirement to feed the poor simply because Jesus said so with no regard for personal benefit. I want you to listen to all of what Jesus says in that passage. He says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Again, Jesus is saying, hey, a life of generosity leads to a lifetime, an eternal lifetime of rewards. They may be delayed. We may receive some blessing in this lifetime, but we will receive blessing in the life to come. In Luke chapter 6, verse 35, he says, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Again, he's motivating us to do radical generosity with the promise of personal reward in eternity. And then in Matthew 6, verses 3 and 4, he says, When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you may be giving, may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, an invitation to radical generosity with the promise of personal reward that comes in eternity. The question is, are we willing to wait for that reward? Or do we expect reward that comes from empty things, things that won't last, things that won't eventually bring fulfillment. Aesop was famous because he wrote a lot of fables, and I like one of his fables. I'm going to share one of them with you this morning. Uh, He tells the story of a miser who buries his gold in a secret place in his garden, and every day he would go to the same spot. He would dig up his treasure. He would count his gold coins to make sure that he still had all of his treasure. And he made so many trips that a thief who had been observing him guessed what the miser had hidden. And the thief, in the middle of the night, he goes back into this garden. He finds the treasure, digs it up, and he steals it. When the miser discovered his loss, he was overcome with grief and and with despair. And he groaned and he cried and he tore his hair out of his head. And and a passerby heard his cries and, and he asked what had happened. And, my gold, my gold, the miser replied, someone has robbed me. Why did you put it there? Why not keep it in a house where... You could easily get to it, and you, and you could have it to buy things. Buy, screamed the miser. Why would I ever think of spending any of my treasure? And the stranger picked up this large stone, and he threw it into the hole, and he said, if that's the case, then cover up that stone. It's worth just as much to you as the treasure that you lost. You see, again, Paul reminds us that we bring nothing into this world, and we will take nothing out of this world. Right, We can, however, lay up treasures in heaven by investing in the work of God's kingdom. Do you trust God in his promises for a great reward in, in eternity? Do you trust him so much that you're willing to be generous in this lifetime with the resources that God gives you? Do you trust God to also provide for your needs and to be content while you're waiting for those eternal rewards? The second thing that Paul really points out in this passage is that trusting in God demands that we make a choice. Each of us wants to steer clear of uh, pain and misery. We want to flee temptation. We want to escape uh, things that are senseless, and we want to get rid of harmful desires. We want to avoid ruin and destruction. These are all things that Paul warns about in this passage. We agree they should be avoided, but how do we do that? Well, some witty person one time said that money will buy a bed but it won't buy sleep. Money's going to buy books, but not brains. Food, but not an appetite. A house, but not a home. Medicine, but not health. Luxuries, but not culture. Amusements, but not happiness. A crucifix, but not a savior. Religion, but not salvation. Wealth is sometimes funny that way. I mean, we can pursue uh, wealth thinking it's going to bring us happiness, going to bring us contentment the more i set my heart on it the more it clouds my vision for what will really make me content and happy what matters is where your heart is the poor can desire to be rich and pursue wealth just as much some as much as someone who's wealthy jesus says that's not really what matters he says what matters is where's your heart wherever your heart is that's where your treasure is so he encourages us spend your wealth and to buy treasures in heaven. Then you will know who you serve. Later on in chapter 6 of Matthew, he says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is asking, who will you choose to serve? Trust requires a choice. Faith in God demands that we not serve money. Paul also talks about trusting God means investing in eternal treasures. We're told over and over again in Scripture to be careful of riches. They could make us prideful. We can begin to imagine that we might be better than others, especially if we make more money than they do. Uh, Money can also sing a a siren song of salvation. Uh, Those who are rich appear to have the power to escape problems and pains in this world. And as a result, there can be a subtle switch that happens in our thinking. Instead of placing my hope on on escaping things that, that are evil in this world, my hope slides into escaping problems and pains that come in this world. And eventually what happens, the result begins to be that I can start to see pleasures of this world as the place of fulfillment rather than the presence of God being the thing that fulfills me. So what shall we do? Jesus, Paul, they invite us to invest our wealth. And to do it wisely, to think carefully and prayerfully about these resources that God has given to us. And what are we going to do with those resources? Well, that we're encouraged to do good, to do good with our money, to be rich in in good works for other things, to be ready to share, to feed the hungry. You know, we're doing the Super Bowl of Hope right now. It's an invitation for us to be radically generous, either in giving money or collecting soup cans, For people who don't have enough resources to even buy food, to make a difference, to feed people that need help and need hope. We're also encouraged to be generous, especially, we're told in the scriptures, to the family of God. We're to be ready to share with those who have need out of the overflow of our resources. And by doing so, we store up treasure for ourselves in heaven. And again, we're encouraged, don't be foolish. Jesus is saying, hey, don't be foolish. You cannot take it with you. You can, however, send it ahead. We can lay up treasures in heaven. John Wesley was an outstanding Christian about three or four centuries ago. And he writes, uh, when a man becomes a Christian, he becomes industrious. He becomes trustworthy and prosperous. Now, if that man can, uh, when he gets all he can and saves all he can, when he does not give all he can, I have more hope for Judas Iscariot than I do for that man. So in conclusion, what do we think about all this? What are we going to do with all the resources that God has given to us? What are we going to do with those? In his chapter on money in a book that John Piper wrote called Desiring God, he observes that many Christians are confused. They're confused about how to use their money because they don't realize the state that we are in. He writes in his book, he says, there's a war going on. All the talk of Christians' right to live a luxurious life in this world as a child of the king in this atmosphere sounds hollow, especially since the king himself is stripped for battle. A wartime lifestyle implies that there is a great and a worthy cause for which to spend and to be spent. And to illustrate this point in his book, he talks about the luxurious liner called the Queen Mary in the early in the nineteen hundreds, uh, the Queen Mary was like the epitome of the luxurious liner ship of the day. I mean it was it was beautiful, it had huge stately ballrooms and dining rooms and, and each individual cabin was so luxurious and, and opulent for every person that, that rode on the ship. And then United States went into World War Two and and we began to realize that we had a huge need for ships to take troops over to the battlefront in Europe and into Africa. And the owners of the luxurious liner realized that that literally the world was at stake. And they realized they, they made the decision to strip down this luxurious liner and convert it into a troop transport ship. And so they tore out all the beautiful woodwork and the stately ballrooms and the dining rooms. And they packed the ship with bunk beds so that literally they could get as many troops on that ship as possible and send them over to Europe to fight the battle. They realized that literally nothing less than the survival of a nation depended upon it. And have we been lulled to sleep by the comforts of our wealth and forgotten that we are at war? God would rather that we send our wealth to the front lines, literally to supply the army and to fight the battle. Now our country has a Department of Defense, and it has the largest share of our government's budget. Billions of dollars go to the Department of Defense. And I think God has what I call a ministry of defense. And his ministry of defense is literally to invite us, his children, followers of Christ, to help take care of the needy, to help feed the hungry, to take care of the widow, to take care of the sick, the people who are in prison, the foster kids, the orphans. Uh, Basically, his ministry of defense is to take care of the defenseless. And he wants us to be generous with our money, with our lives, with our time and talents, investing in lives that will make a difference for all of eternity. But to go there requires ultimate trust in a generous God. Then your father will see that your heart is thrilled by his cause and will reward you. The question he's asking us again is, will you, will you store up treasures in heaven? Or are we going to build treasure chests here on earth that we can never take with us? God is inviting us to make the better choice a choice that literally will have an eternal impact. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your encouragement. We thank you, God, for your generosity. Uh, God, you have loved us with an overwhelming love. We can never fully comprehend how great your love for us is. God, we can see it. We see it in Christ who is willing to give his life for us. We can see it in the power that you had over death in the resurrection. God, we see it on a regular basis as you give and you give and you give. You give to us richly and generously. And you invite us in turn to take these resources. And out of the overflow that we have in you, to give. To give like you give. To make a difference. To build your kingdom. To be invested in something that will last beyond ourselves. That will last for all of eternity. In lives, in relationships and turning around someone uh, so that they can be a part of the kingdom of God as well. God, we desire that many times, though we fall short. God, help us through the power of your Holy Spirit to build and to have trust that you are good, that you will take care of us, that your promises are better than anything this world has to offer. God, help us to live into that. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. just said